Take your Bible. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. This is located on page 611 of your pew Bible. Isaiah, 4, uh, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. We'll not be reading into chapter 51. Hear God's word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he wakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not back. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who put out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare my guilt? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Well, do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah 50. Let's have a moment's prayer together. Let's pray. Lord God, your word, the word of Christ, is our rule. Your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And your greater glory is our supreme concern. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In this passage we've read together, we're identify, we, we have identified for us a figure whose voice we hear from verse 4. The destiny of the entire world is bound up with this servant that is announced by Isaiah of Jerusalem eight centuries before Christ. To this prophet, your and my eternal joy, your and my happiness depend on this individual faithfully fulfilling the task that has been given to him. Back in chapter 49, we're told what that task was. It was, verse 6, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel, and to be a light for the nations so that the salvation of God might reach to the ends of the earth. This individual is responsible 
for rescuing and raising up and restoring to God Jews, people from the ten tribes of Israel that were lost at the Babylonian invasion, and people from out of nations to the very ends of the earth. He is responsible for their rescue, their restoration, and their reconciliation to God. Your salvation, my salvation, depends on Him doing His work right. Back in chapter 49, He was identified. He was given a name. Uh, The Lord says this to Him. He says, you, verse 3, are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, that came as a big surprise to those of us who have been following the argument of Isaiah up to this point. It came as a big surprise because we have the entire book of Isaiah, and it's a big book. We're on chapter 50 today, uh, and we've a long way to go. But we've been at it for a long time, and in this book, Isaiah has carefully constructed the case against Israel, against the Jews, and against the nations of the world. He has carefully constructed the case, and he has demonstrated again and again and again that the Jews, Israel, and the world are guilty. They are guilty as charged. They are guilty before God. They have something to answer for. Over and over and over again, we have seen this take place. You can see the kind of situation in verse 2, where God comes looking for somebody, somebody, any, anyone, anywhere, anybody, just to turn up who would listen to Him, who would hear His voice, who would respond to Him, who would obey Him, that He could use. And wherever He looked, there was, it says in verse 2, no one, no one to hear, no one to answer the call. Here's the situation. We need this individual who's being identified by Isaiah who is called my servant Israel, whose job is to raise up the tribes of Jacob, bring back the preserved of Israel, and be a light to the nations. We need him to succeed. Where we are 10 billion years from today will depend on the success of this individual's work. Now, as Isaiah constructs his argument, he He puts this servant Israel in stark contrast to servant Israel, the nation. He's talked a lot about servant Israel, the nation. They were meant to be the servants of God, but instead of serving Him, they served themselves. Instead of obeying Him, they disobeyed Him. And so as we begin to see the profiles of Israel the nation and Israel the man emerge here and separate here, we discover that whereas corporate Israel represents many people, servant Israel represents one man, one individual in the history of humanity. Whereas corporate Israel doesn't listen, this servant Israel listens to God. Whereas corporate Israel is unconvinced about God's love, the servant is persuaded about God's love. Where corporate Israel doubts the power of God, 
the servant is absolutely convinced of God's power. Whereas corporate Israel questions God's nearness, asks whether God can help or God has the power or the willingness to help. Servant Israel, the man, is utterly sure that God is near him, that God will help him. And where corporate Israel is destined in Isaiah's day to suffer for her disobedience, this man, this servant, will suffer for being obedient to God. And whereas corporate Israel is charged over and over again with offenses, servant Israel emerges from this passage, and he knows no charge against him that can be sustained before the ultimate court of the universe. The gulf between the nation and the man, the corporate body and the representative individual, servant Israel in general and this servant in particular, is as big as eternity. And all of our expectations and hopes hang in the balance of this servant's obedience to the task given to him by God. Now, that's the background then to verse 4. And in verse 4, we hear the voice of the servant. We know that because if you glance down to verse 10, verse 10 tells you whose voice we have just heard, the voice of his servant. This servant has been introduced twice before in two songs. Chapter 42, chapter 49 the servant speaks, and then in response to his speaking, there are two great hymns of praise. Here, however, the servant speaks, and instead of a hymn of praise following it, there is an exhortation to us to do something. And we'll see what that is when we come to it. So here is Isaiah in his day, 800 years before Jesus, talking about events that will happen in Jesus' life before he goes to the cross, and the Spirit enables him to hear the voice of Jesus as he speaks to his Father after the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation to glory, sharing what went on and how he felt in the run-up to the cross during his earthly life. So there are three time references to keep in your head as we study the passage. There is, if you will, the prophetic time, 800 years before Christ. There is the historic time, the time at which some of the action is taking place that is reflected on or reported here. And there is what we might call the theodramatic time, that is, the point at which God is involved, as it were, in this conversation within the Godhead, and that happens after the exaltation. If you didn't understand any of that, it will not affect you understanding the rest of the talk, but it's there for those who can take it, okay? I want you to notice what is on the mind of this individual. He is a servant of the Lord, and he's speaking. What is on his mind? Well, you can tell what's on his mind by what he repeats in the passage. Four times, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and, and verse 9. What's on his mind? The Lord God is on his mind. That is, the sovereign Lord is on his mind. 
the one who reigns, rules, governs, and works out and ordains everything according to his own purpose and pleasure. That is the God who is on his mind. This great name, the Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh, this great name gives a sense of majesty and weightiness to the servant's words. Four times it's used in this one servant song. Here is one who, unlike others that have been mentioned in this book, lives with a living consciousness of the Lord God as the sovereign Lord of the universe, as the covenant God who gives and keeps His word, as the one who both creates and sustains the universe by the very word of His power. He is so conscious of having been called by, gifted by, appointed by this God, that this God is His God. Now, as you listen to the servant, I want you to notice the thing that stands out in this passage is the servant's faithfulness. First of all, he is a faithful listener. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. And at the end of verse 4, morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. What has been God's controversy with Israel. God's controversy with Israel right from the first chapter is that Israel is a rebel in God's world. Both in chapter 50 and here in chapter, sorry, in chapter 1 and here in chapter 50 in verse 2, they are rebellious. They are rebellious against God. In chapter 6, Rather than hear God, rather than listen to God, chapter 6 says they are blind and can't see, they're deaf, they can't hear, and their hearts are calloused, they cannot feel the power and impact of the Word of God. But this servant, this servant, do you notice, is not rebellious. Look at verse 5. As for me, I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I didn't, I didn't apostatize. I didn't deviate. I didn't hesitate. I kept God's word. I listened to God and I did what God said. Okay, let's pause for a moment and think about this. Right from the very founding of the nation of Israel, God wanted to be heard by them. The great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, begins with the word here. The Lord wants to be heard by His people. The, word, the, the expression, hear the word of the Lord, is the great prophetic summons. Wherever the prophet comes in God's name to speak to men and women, whether he's addressing the nations, representing the great world system around, or whether he's addressing the church, the nation, the people of God. Hear the word of the Lord. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He wants to be heard by his people. That's why he's ordained that in the church, we don't just sit and read our copies of the sermon. We hear it because God is a speaking God. He communicates by speaking. What he has said has been written down. What has been written down is intended to be re-spoken to the church. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God becomes the Word of God in changing our hearts and our minds. That is Reformed theology. It's a good day to remind ourselves, being Reformation Sunday, that that is the basic Reformed view of the Word of God. And over 394 times in the Old Testament, 
There is a reference to the Word of God coming to the people of God. Here we have this individual, this one individual, who stands out, he leaps from the pages of the Bible. You go everywhere else in the Bible and you don't find this person. King David, God uses him to give us the Word of God, but does King David believe it and obey it all the time? No, he doesn't. Isaiah, Isaiah is giving us this prophecy. But Isaiah could say when he met God one day in the temple and he was overwhelmed by the holiness of God, I am a man of unclean lips. Wherever you go in the Bible, you find great men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Peter and James and John, and guess what? All of these men, all of these men are sinners. None of these men perfectly keep the Word of God. And today, everybody in this room, without any exception, is a sinner in the sight of God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is like this man, this servant. So he stands out from the pages of Scripture. We hear him speak again in Psalm 40. Let me read that psalm to you in verses 6 to 8. Here, is, here are the words from the very mouth of the Son of God given, given to David about a thousand years before Christ came into the world. And here is the Son of God reflecting on the body that God will give him and the mission that God will give to him. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. Let me tell you something. The very best people in this room would have to say to God, I would delight, I want to delight to do your will, O God. And I would like your law to be written on my heart. This one can say, without blushing, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is written in my heart. So what do we discover about this servant right at the very beginning of this third song? He is preoccupied with God. He is aware of God. He, he recognizes that he lives his life, as it were, under the, the eye of God and is exposed to him all of the time. What is he saying to us? He is saying, as we look at this, uh, as we look at these words, here is one who hears from God and delivers a message from God. He is a prophet. He is the great prophet of God. He is the perfect prophet of God. Everything he hears, he passes on and does so infallibly, without error, and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Morning by morning, he is awakened by God. His ear is awakened. And morning by morning, he hears as one who is attentive to the voice of God. He, is, he receives the Word of God. He hears it in the sense of he obeys it in the way that sometimes you say to someone when you're trying to get the message through, my wife is telling me that I have to go to the store and get something on the way home. And she'll ask me the question, did you hear what I said? <laughs> Were you talking? And that's really very often the case. That, that's a very dangerous place to go. But the, the, the sense that it's used here in this passage is 
He just doesn't hear the words. He actually hears in the sense of grasping and obeying. This servant is an obedient servant. Corporate Israel is never like this. Called to obey God, what do they do? They disobey it over and over and over again. Let me just tell you, the church of Jesus Christ isn't like this. When Jesus sends letters to the church of Jesus Christ that are recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of every letter, here is his word to the church. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And even as I speak week by week to the church, there are times when I, like you, don't hear what's being said. Do you think I hear it all the time? No. All I am is a voice. That's all I am. The Word of God is coming to me. This Word is being preached to me, sometimes because I have no idea what I'm going to say next. The Spirit of God alone applies the Word of God to all of our hearts as we come to hear it. But I want you to notice what this message is. You can look at verse 4. Actually, let me contrast this. Back, in, back earlier, we've heard something about this servant uh, God has given him a message, a word that he has to speak, and this word is a, de a decisive and a divisive word. And uh, wh wherever he speaks, his word is like a sword, and that sword divides between people. You know, the Bible does that. The Bible, when it's being preached, divides the congregation between believers and unbelievers, between hearers and not hearers. Over and over again, the Word of God is a divisive thing. It, 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 it either builds you up or it breaks you down. It comforts those who, who need comforted, and it disturbs those who need disturbed. This Word of God is not a comfortable thing. But, but I want you to notice what the principal ministry of this servant is. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him or her who is weary. Morning by morning, day by day, the word of Jesus is a word to those who are weary. This uh, reference to the servant's word for the weary identifies immediately the connection between this song and the other servant songs. Though his words divide, nonetheless they come to those who are broken. Those who are haughty, the Word condemns them. Those who are proud, the Word breaks them down. Those who are humble, the humble, poor, believe. That is, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, they, they recognize they have nothing to plead, nothing to bargain with, nothing to negotiate with God about. The humble, poor, believe. This Word is a Word for those who recognize their sin. Jesus knew that. Jesus taught that. He said He had come to speak to those who were weary and heavy laden and give them rest. That's why He'd come. He'd come to give comfort and sustain those who are weary. Now, I need you to notice then that corporate Israel couldn't do any of this. Only this one, this ultimate servant, could please the Lord and obey the Lord because he and he alone out of all of humanity loved the Lord God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. He out of all of humanity came into the world loving the law of God, not dodging it or wanting to 
re, re misrepresent it or reorientate it. He loved the Word of God and he loved the law of God in its entirety. Jesus loved the law of God. You can't call yourself a follower of Jesus if you hate the law of God. You can't. He loved it and he kept it. He delighted in it and he obeyed it. And he obeyed it, do you notice, for us. You find yourself here because God said to him, You are my servant Israel, so that Israel might be gathered to you, back to God, and that you would bring back the preserved of Israel and be a light to the nations so that my salvation would reach the ends of the earth. It would start in Jerusalem. It would push out into Samaria, former Israel, and then to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus came into the world to do. And he is a faithful listener. He says to us, I do always the things that are pleasing to him. John chapter 8. He says again in John chapter 8, I do nothing of my authority. I speak just as the Father taught me. And again in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Jesus is a faithful listener. Secondly, Jesus is a faithful sufferer. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. There's the big difference. Israel was rebellious. This suffering servant, Jesus, is not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I did not retreat. I did not apostatize. I did not turn away from the will of God. I kept going with the will of God. Now, here's something else that comes when you're doing the will of God. Do you see this? This is what it means to be obedient and not rebellious against the Word of God. In verse 6, the servant, speaking after the cross, resurrection, and exaltation, is reflecting back on the past. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. Do you see the insight this gives us into the thinking and psychology of Jesus in his humanity? Do you see what an insight this gives us into his control of the circumstances of his life. He doesn't say, I came and people beat up on me. I came and they attacked me. No, he says to us, do you notice the deliberation with which he speaks? I gave my back to those who had the public duty of beating the criminal, the strikers. I gave myself to that. I gave my cheeks to those degra degraded people who delighted in the heinous crime of insulting and pulling the beard and were determined to humiliate him, the kind of rabble. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from the disgrace and spitting of the crowd as they gave their verbal insults to me as I was arrested. Jesus is reflecting back on these things. He's reporting it to his Father. 
He's telling his father what this was like for him. He had to do this. This is what he went through there from his vantage point. And if we are serious, let me say this, is an application for us. If we're serious about being taught of God, then we'd better be ready for, that, for, for what that might bring. It says about Jesus, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The words of Scripture were to be fulfilled literally in Jesus' experience. But because he is an open ear to the Word of God, he understands the Word of God. He understands why this is occurring, and he submits to the will of God. Because to have an open ear means to be obedient to what we hear. Now, there's an application here. A principle that runs throughout the whole Bible, that the faithful listening to God will result in conflict with the world. John Calvin applies it to ministers of the gospel when he says, whoever faithfully administers the word will be exposed to a contest with the world. In fact, uh, one of the other commentators uh, put it like this, to be a prophet in Israel was synonymous with humiliation and abuse. When the prophets came with the word of God, that's what they expected. Jesus, when he was grieving over the city of Jerusalem, said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And in many ways, the role of a minister in our Reformed church is the role of a prophet by analogy, and the role of the prophet is to be a covenant prosecutor in God's place, prosecuting the charges that God has to make to His people. And that's a very hard thing to be responsible for doing. But it goes with the territory because Jesus did it, and we're following the Master. But it applies to all of us as Jesus' people. As we obey His Word, it puts us at odds with the world. And you see, here's what one old writer calls the Gethsemane of the servant. Justin Martyr, he talked about listening to the voice of the Messiah, reporting on His passion in His state of exaltation. I gave, I hid not. Listen to Jesus' words as He spells out that this was not forced on Him. This was not something He was tricked into. This was not plan B. This was the purpose of His coming for His people. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So when you look at this one, on whom your eternal well-being hangs, look at him, humbling himself to be dealt with and mistreated by the authorities the way he was unjustly, allowing himself to be exposed to these worldly sorts who mock him and degrade him publicly. Look at him. As he says to us, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Look at him, listen to him, and understand that he is a faithful sufferer for you, for his people, for those who believe in him, for those he is calling out of the world. He is undergoing all of this on your behalf. Listen to him as he reports to his disciples after his resurrection, the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory. 
And as he reports, I want you to notice this, as he reports, he will not allow himself to be diverted. The Lord God, he says, helps me. The Lord helps me. But he says, I set my face like a flint. Do you notice that? I set my face like a flint. I will not be distracted. I will not be put off. I will not be turned away. I will not be turned back. Satan wants me to take another way whereby I'll get the kingdoms of this world without going to the cross. I will not take that route. In Gethsemane, with the cup of suffering before me and the possibility that I could ignore the, the cup of suffering, I will not, I will not deny it. But I will drink it up. He drank it all up for your sin and for mine. This is the Savior. The servant is a faithful listener. Secondly, he's a faithful believer. Look at what he says in verse 7. The Lord God is helping me, keeps helping me. The Lord helps me in that sense. He's saying, Perhaps to the heavenly court, he's saying the Lord God was there with me. You get an insight here, brothers and sisters. You get an insight here to our Lord's life on earth that is quite unique. This is how we know so much about Jesus. Isaiah told us a lot about him. Here is the Lord speaking to his Father. He says to, he says to whoever is listening in the heavenly courts, the Lord God kept helping me. People were looking on. They were seeing me arrested. They were seeing me have a mistrial. There was uh, an unjust trial. They were seeing me being spat at and derided and people pulling on my beard as I was dragged through the streets. They looked at that and they thought, what a disaster. But all the time, he never let me go. He never let me go. He was always by my side. He was always providing his assistance to me. He was there all the time. He never, not for one nanosecond, did he let me go. There were those moments when he reminded me, reminded me, this is my son, hear him. This is my son, I'm well pleased with him. But he never let me go. All the time, his word was my comfort and my joy. Even on the cross, when I cried out, Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was reminding me of Psalm 22. And in that Psalm, all the reassurances that absolutely every part of this terrible scenario had been laid down in the plot line of redemption in Scripture. My dear friend, just as the Lord God kept helping Jesus in His suffering for your sin and mine, I want you to know, brother and sister, the Lord God will always be there helping you. He will never let you go. Maybe you're here this morning and you think you're on your own. You're isolated. There's nobody else beside you. There's nobody there to help you. You're, you're absolutely exposed to the world for your foolishness, perhaps, or your weakness, or, or you, feel as if, you feel as if God has no interest in you anymore. Brother, sister, I want you to know that the Lord God who was with your Jesus is with you who belong to Jesus. And he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and he will never, ever let you go. The Lord God help, keeps helping me. And in particular, do you see how he responds to this? He's quite unique from us in this respect. 
Look at what he goes on to say here. He says, I have never been disgraced. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me, that's God, is near. Who will contend with me? Listen to this. He, in a sense, he's, he's looking back to his experience and he's saying there as, I, as, as, it, as the end came near. I was reassured by this reality. Who was going to come up with any charge that could be proved and prosecuted against me? Now, let me tell you this. Nobody else in this room could say that the way Jesus said it. He could think of nothing. No skeleton in his closet. Nothing in the dark recesses of his mind or memory. Anything in his outward behavior, anything, anything, anywhere that was even a hint of a fracture in his obedience to his father. You could say, to the devil, if you've got any accusations, bring them on. Bring them on. Nothing will stand. Nothing will stand. He does that in perfect obedience. Who will contend with me? Let us, he says, let's stand together. Come on now. Mano a mano. Let's, you know, bring it on. That's what it means. Let him take a stand against me. But there is nobody. There is absolutely nobody. Do you see that? The Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? There are no charges that can be brought against me. All of those who like to bring charges are like a moth-eaten garment that will eventually disappear. We're listening to Jesus speaking about his perfect obedience and it's these verses that come to the Apostle Paul's mind when he's writing to people who are located where? Those of you who know your Bible, Romans chapter 8. Where are his people located? Paul's great expression, he repeats it over and over again. You've been coming to 10th for any length of time. And I mean any length of time. You should know this expression. Especially if you spent a hundred years doing Romans. It's the expression in Christ. In Christ. Where is the believer today? The believer is in Christ. Hidden in Christ. Beyond the reach of harm. And, and so Paul says, as he's writing Romans, he says to the believers to whom he's writing Reflecting on this, Jesus could say, because of his perfect obedience, who can bring any charge against me? It will not stand. Where are you today as a believer? Here's one of the great Reformation themes. It's bursting from this passage. I couldn't have chosen a passage as good as this. And here it is delivered to our laps this morning. Here is the great message that the church recovered at the time of the Reformation. Where is the believer? The believer is in Christ. What does that mean for the believer? Here's what Paul says. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Why? Because Christ has died. 
And Christ lives and he makes intercession for us all the time, all the time. And because he lives and because he makes intercession and because God has vindicated him and God has raised him up and made him son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus' success is our success. Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. And there is no condemnation, you see, to those who are in Christ. In Christ. Well, Jesus is the faithful listener. He's the faithful sufferer and he's the faithful believer. He believes and he suffers as a believer on the cross. Well, the passage ends with two verses that are a voice of challenge to us today. Because the issue that's raised here is, what are we going to do about this servant? We can't just hear these great things about what he's done, his perfect obedience, and the blood of his sacrifice. These are great things. But what do they mean for me? What do they mean? How am I going to be in Christ? Where am, how am I going to be able to stand alongside and with him who was absolutely obedient to God when I am disobedient? How does it happen? Look at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Fears the Lord is an Old Testament expression that captures everything you can say about having all for worship, or in the sense of A-W-E, all for God, finding Him awesome in that sense. Worship for God, trust in God, belief in God, rest in God. I want you to notice the parallel. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? I want you to see that there is nobody in the world who can fear the Lord without obeying the voice of his servant, Jesus. You can say you believe in God, but if you don't believe in his servant, Jesus, the God you believe in is a, fa a figment of your imagination. He does not exist. He does not exist. If you say, I believe in God and in his prophet X, that is not what he says. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus. It's the only name that opens heaven's gates. It's the only name that brings us into the Father's house. It's the only name that brings us right into the Father's presence. It's the only name that gives you eternal life. And 10 billion years from today, it will be the name of Jesus that will be the most precious name to you of all. As you experience and enjoy him forever. So here it is. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Believe in this voice. Trust in this voice. Look at what it goes on to say. Those who are walking in darkness and have no light. Listen, this is what you must do. If you're in a place where you've never seen this, never grasped this, and you're looking for purpose and meaning in your life, and you're looking for a way back to God or a way to God for the very first time, listen, this is how it comes about. Trust on the name of the Lord and rely on your God, trust in Him, rely on Him, cast yourself 
on Him. Because if you try any other way to shatter the darkness, if you look for any other answer, it's like kindling a fire and burning torches by which all you will see are the very burning torches that you've lit for yourself. You will not see God. You will not see God. And you will lie down in torment. You will lie down in torment. That isn't just the last little phrase to scare you. That is the ultimate threat. What keeps us from torment, what brings us out of darkness into light, is hearing the servant, trusting in the servant who was obedient for you, who died for you, who rose for you, who reigns for you, and who will come again for his people. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow before you right now, we ask that by your great mercy, you would draw near to us as you drew near to people and have done over the centuries of the Christian church, that we might trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation that we might find ourselves in Him so that when we read these, passage, these words written about the servant, we find now that they have application to us. And as His servants, servants of the servant of the Lord, we pray that we might be listeners to Your voice and be obedient to Your voice and give You all our praise and glory. In Jesus' strong name, amen.